So we've been studying through, as the video indicated, 1 Kings chapter 12. And so uh, we are in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting at verse 25 today. So we're going to be in 25 through 1420. So it's kind of a bigger section uh, of scripture, but nevertheless, uh, we'll get through it. Um, but we've just, as if you haven't been here, first Kings is kind of the story of how the monarchy starts in Israel. And as the monarchy starts, uh, you have Solomon over all 12 tribes and the place that we are is right after Solomon's death. There's a split now where there's 10 tribes to the North and two to the South. And we're going to look at how the split basically, um, comes about and what's going on. And we're going to look at the two to the South with Jeroboam. So, uh, today and, He's not a good guy. He's not a good king. So that's where we are in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting at verse 25. So if you will, stand with me. I'm going to read um, the first little part here in chapter 12, starting in verse 25. I'm going to read 25 through the rest of the chapter. That's through 33. We're also, as I said, going to do 13 and 14 uh, through verse 20. Uh, and, and this is basically the story of Jeroboam uh, and how he's not a good king. Uh, after I read um, this sad part of beginning of Jeroboam's life, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll, of course, after we say that, th- say, we say, thanks be to God, because we thank the Lord that he's kind enough to give us his word. But let that also be for you when you say thanks, uh, an indication in your heart that you want to say yes and obey the things that God teaches you. So um, chapter 12, 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the king, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He doesn't want that to happen. So the king took counsel and made two cows of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and he set the other and put the other in Dan kind of really far North and South. And he, uh, then this thing became a sin for the people as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people <clears throat> who were not Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high place that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month in the month that he had devised in his own heart. He instituted a feast for the people in Israel and he went up to the altar to make offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And I pray that as we look at the unfolding story of Jeroboam and the wickedness of his heart and the disobedience in his heart to your word, as we look at this story unfold and the story uh, and Sue's in front of us that we um, would, of course, learn from his life. Um, we'd see that he is a, uh, a bad king before your people Israel. But ultimately, Lord, as we see this Old Testament narrative about Jeroboam, that you point us to the king of kings and our absolute um, need for him and how we should want to obey him and give our lives to him and uh, put our only hope and trust in him for our righteousness, that there are no other kings besides the king of kings. And more so, um, and moreover, as we, as we look at uh, these particular people and 
the end of 12 and into 13 and beginning of 14 who don't obey your word, who do not care about your word, that you would cause us to want to love your word, obey your word. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us and show us these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so as we've said in, cha- <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 12, um, Jeroboam is, is, is not a good king. And as he's beginning his reign, he wants to hold on to power. He wants to secure power. And he doesn't want the people of God to follow after Rehoboam. Because if Rehoboam, as he says in verse 26, will turn back to the house of David, that would be a good thing. As it, That's the end of verse 26. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. As you read the Old Testament, uh, when, thing, when it refers to David over and over, David had his problems, but as you hear things talking about the house of David, this is a good thing. And Jeroboam does not want the people to return to the house of David because for him, that means loss of power. And holding on to power is super important to him, so much so that he's actually willing to abandon what would be right orthodoxy, this means right worship of God, and move into heterodoxy, wrong thoughts of God, just to secure power, uh, just to hold on to this. So he sees that this could happen. And so he says, now the kingdom would turn back to the house of David and he does not want that to happen. So he's willing to actually go into terrible things, do terrible things in order to hold on to power for himself just so he can be king. So uh, what I'm, what, the way I've kind of outlined it is we have chapter 12 is Roman numeral one, chapter 13 is Roman numeral two and chapter uh, 14 is Roman numeral three. They all start with a D. So it's super fun. Um, downfall, disobedience and death. Um, so it's a super happy sermon for you on this rainy, rainy day. Nevertheless, here we go. So, uh, we're going to look at chapter 12 now. And this is, this is for, for not just Jeroboam as the King of Israel. Remember the King of Israel leads the people Israel. And so for, this is a Jeroboam and the the people he leads a down, down uh, fall of orthodoxy or Jeroboam's fears uh, are going to lead, deliver them into heterodoxy. Heterodoxy is just means bad theology, wrong, think, wrong thinking about God. So there's a downfall of orthodoxy and we can see it um, in verse 26 where he says, uh, where he says, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. That is... Uh, because they were all, he was already a wicked guy. That's a return to orthodoxy. That's a good thing. And one of the things that he fears is a return to orthodoxy, mainly because it means he won't get to be king anymore. So the first thing that we see in this downfall of orthodoxy is he has a real fear of return to orthodoxy. Turning back to the house of David means abandoning wrong uh, theology and going to right theology. As Dale Davis says, Jeroboam then turns away from orthodoxy, not because it was no longer true, but because it was no longer useful. So for him, right theology is good as long as it helps me maintain where I am in this position that I have. But in order for me to maintain this position, if I have to let go of right theology, no big deal. Because the position is more than me than the truth of God. Right thoughts about God, right theology, biblical orthodoxy is not something that he cares about. Really, holding on to his kingship is really what he, what he cares about. And therefore, for us, right thoughts about God, right theology, biblical orthodoxy, unlike Jeroboam, is not something that we should quickly abandon just because cultural changes, new fads, or we just want to be cool now, wherever the cultural milieu goes, we shouldn't want to go with it uh, if it means changing our orthodoxy. For Jeroboam, no big deal. 
No big deal at all. For us, not, not supposed to happen. We don't change right thoughts about God, right theology, biblical orthodoxy. It's not something that we quickly abandon. Instead, for the people of God, biblical fidelity is important to us because it's God's truth, not ours. He has decided what is true and what is in his word. And it's not for us to shape it and decide uh, according to the cultural milieu if we want to change it now um, like he does. Because it's his truth. We instead live by his word because he was actually kind enough to give us his word in the first place. And so we should never, ever want to change it. We should want to live by orthodox theology, right thoughts about right right God, right biblical orthodoxy um, and theology. Because um, he gave it to us. No matter how out of style we may seem uh, following it, we should never want to change it. But for him... Uh, now, we know it's because he wants to not lose power, but for him, it's no big deal to switch out of orthodoxy and go into heterodoxy. It, that should not be the case for us. He <clears throat> does not love the word of God. Now, as we've seen, the reason why he's going to do this, he tells us in verse 27, if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, <clears throat> where God said, um, <laughs> then the heart of his people will turn back to the Lord, um, again to their Lord, to Rehoboam their king. Uh, that's the cap, the lowercase L is talking about Rehoboam. Uh, they will kill me and return Rehoboam, king of Judah. Instead of Rehoboam being over just a 10, he'll get to be all over 12. I'll lose my power. Don't want to lose my power. That sounds bad. And everybody returns back to David. Well, I've already, I'm already fine with heterodoxy. I certainly don't want that. So the second thing that, that that's happening is not only does he fear orthodoxy, he fears a loss of power. He fears a loss of power. He, he knows that turning back to the house of David, what does he do? Um, he changes his theology just to keep his power. I like to be king. I don't want to lose my power. And so he simply cannot trust in God's word, which, by the way, um, this is just horrific thinking on his behalf because God has already come to him. I know you all remember this. Just want to remind you in first Kings chapter 11 and verse 38. And is actually said to him in first Kings 11, verse 38. Through the prophet Ahijah comes to him and looks at right in the face in Jerusalem and uh, uh, looks at Jeroboam right in the face and says, in verse, this is 1138. Hey, Jeroboam, if you will listen to what I command you and you will walk in my ways and do what's right in my eyes and keep my statutes, and my commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you. You and we'll build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give to you Israel to you. So his fears of what will happen are absolutely unfounded. It's not going to happen. You won't lose power. Rehoboam won't take over. He's already told you if you'll follow after David, it's going to, it's going to be go, It's going to go well for you, but he simply cannot trust in God's word in order to be king. He must make himself secure by his own hand. So he does what he can here, abandoning right theology in order to just hold power. And you're like, well, I would never do that because I'm not a king or whatever. And not, that's not me. I think that we should maybe stop and think that we likely will do this at times in our life. We, we might be just like Jeroboam, not exactly in the same way, but I think we can do this as well, not by necessarily securing a power of a monarchy, uh, because none of us are kings here. At least I don't think anybody is. Uh, but uh, we can certainly crave security enough to where we walk by sight rather than by faith. And that's what he's doing. He's ultimately securing power by his own hand rather than trusting the Lord, who's already said, 
walk according to my statutes. Instead of trusting God to take care of us, we can grab for, for power and security by trying to do things on our own power, living by sight rather than by faith, rather than waiting on God, living by faith and trusting his timing. And even worse, uh, like him, we can also literally reject God's will in our lives because we know that if we live according to that particular thing for God's will to our life, it'll actually change my life. And I don't like to, to change my life right now. My life right now is relatively easy. The things that I have on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, I like, and I don't like changing that. And if I do God's will for my life, I could rock the boat and it could get me out of my comfort zone. And I might have to actually do risky things for Jesus. And I certainly don't want to do that. Why rock the boat? I'm going to hold on to security, not power like him, but security and not do what God says. And that kind of thinking it's always been contrary to scripture. It's always been contrary to scripture. For him, it was a loss of power. For us, we can do the same thing and not live according to God's word and just hold on to security. Um, why rock the boat of my easy life right now? Because I really like the way it is. Even though God might be challenging you to do something really hard. Um, for him, it was a loss of power. For us, it's a loss of security. That's the first two things we see here in the downfall. Um, and these next two are kind of where he's going to have a... Uh, a two-pronged uh, building up of old apostasy and a new kind of religion. Uh, but it's all really the same thing. And we're going to see <clears throat> how it takes place here. So in verse 27, he's already kind of listed out his fear. I don't want them to, to do this. But in verse 28, uh, it says this. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And I know you're thinking, that sounds kind of familiar. And if I remember... Back with Aaron in Exodus 32, that didn't go so well. I remember when they made golden calves that uh, God didn't like that. Well, you're right. And I know that you are. Uh, I love how you're thinking. So let me read something to you regarding Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. Namely, I want you to hear what the writer of 1 Kings chapter 12 is pointing us to. As you read this... Um, the writer is warning you to think of Aaron and the golden calf. So much so that we're going to actually see a direct quote of Aaron. A direct quote um, from Jeroboam. So ex Exodus chapter 32 verse 4 says, When he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with graving tool and made a golden calf. Uh, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These golden calves, not the hand of Yahweh, were the things that delivered you from slavery in Egypt. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, here, he does not want his people to return to right worship in Jerusalem in the former ways of David. And so what he's going to do is actually go even earlier than David to where they had apostasy, pagan worship of golden calves and say, Hey guys, we're going super retro. Really old school Israel here. And so back then they used to do this thing like worshiping calves. And so retro's back. It's all, we're all about worshiping calves again. And here, here's how he says it in verse 20, whatever I said, eight, uh, verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to his people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Don't go to Jerusalem anymore. God says to worship new place, new plan. I, I got the plan and I'm Jer. So follow me. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That should have been like the first clue. Like, uh, Jer, retro's bad. Uh, I remember Exodus 32 and that was a bad deal, but it's all in how he pitches it, right? No, no. Old worship of Israel is back in. 
So what we're going to do is worship like Aaron did back in, you know, the year. And so for him, what he's going to do here, his fear of wanting to hold on to power is actually going to manifest old idolatry that should have been gone and killed back into the life of Israel from the time of it, from Aaron. So see, oh, there, perfect. His fear manifested a return to old idolatry. What does the writer do? Or what does uh, he, do, he do? He says, hey, old apostasy, guys. It's all back in now. Um, retro is cool again. We're going to worship uh, these golden calves. We're going we're gonna to get it going. Let's do it. It's going to be awesome. And as one, uh, as one writer says, he ends up uh, bringing up a grade A bull session. That's what he does. Uh, I thought that's pretty apropos. And that guy's funny. Um, so, uh, so here's what he does. A tragedy... That was a deviation in right worship all the way back in Exodus 32. um, That was apostasy and evil idolatry gives an excuse for Jeroboam much later to actually advocate for that false idolatry. Bring it back in and try to try to reinstitute it as old old worship that's new back in. And it's actually wrong worship of God. And now it's going to destroy the nation of Israel. So this is what this king does. Um, he reinstitutes an old idolatry and we will see as we go into chapter 13, some people partake of it. Some people are there doing these new things. So, uh, C is not only a return of old idolatry, but D shows us that actually it's a creation of a new false religion as well. So it's, it's old apostasy with some new, some new creations of new religion, ultimately a new cult. He makes a cult. So, um, you can see in verse 33, where it says, he went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day and the 8th month. And here it is, in the month, here it is, that he had devised from his own heart. That's the, that phrase right there aptly describes Jeroboam's newfound cult. We should not ever feel um, like we have the right to create any kind of new processes of worship of the Lord. He has told us, or, or new theologies or anything. He's told us, um, this is how you are to know me. This is who I am. This is how you're saved. Only through Christ. And this is how you worship me. And there it is. And so what he does here is creates himself a new cult. Out of whatever just devises in his own heart. This is always, always wrong. <laughs> Don't create out of your own heart new ways that you feel like you should worship God, especially when they're contra the scriptures. He has told us how he wants us to do it. And so D, oh, it's already up there. His fear manifests a creation of a new false religion. And just to give you like, so we talked about the oldness of let's, let's go Exodus 32 retro. And here's the newness of also what he's doing wrong. I'll show you, you can see him right there in 31, 32 and 32 B. There's at least three new things that he does. I know you know them, but let's just rehearse them. So verse 31, it says this. And he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people. Here it is. Who were not of the Levites wrong. The priests were always and only supposed to be of the Levites. And that's all. The second thing is this um, a little bit more obscure. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. It's always supposed to be on the seventh month. New cult, new creation. We're going to do on the eighth month, not the seventh. And then lastly, and maybe the most important, he changes the place of worship to Bethel. Uh, Beth, Bethel means like the house of God is the name of the city. To, from, he changes it to Bethel, which is a nice name. But it's just not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be in Jerusalem um, where you can see it in 32B. So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the high priest 
of the high places that he made. And so here, um, he made the new place of worship, Bethel, not Jerusalem, creating this bull session. Um, and so here, what he does is Yahweh's truth, Yahweh's worship, Yahweh's word, Yahweh's name, Yahweh's theology was supposed to be set in stone. God has said, this is who I am. This is how you worship. This is my name. This is my theology. This is how it's supposed to do. It was supposed to be set in stone and not fixed. But for Jeroboam, it was pliable. Like I can move it and shake it however I want so that I can maintain my own little kingdom here. And so for him, I'll just create a new religion. I'll just do whatever I want. Um, God told him, as we've already said, in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight, what he was supposed to do. If you listen to all that I commanded and walk in my ways and do what's right in my eyes, you keep my statutes, you keep my commandments as David did. I'll be with you. I'll build you a sure house as I built for David and I'll give it to you. But this is not what he wants. He wants the opposite. He wants to do whatever he wants according. He wants to create for himself Yahweh's truth, Yahweh's worship, Yahweh's word, Yahweh's name and his theology uh, in the way that he wants it, not in the way that God has told him. And surely we can do this. Surely we can do this. You may not do it intentionally. Some people will do it intentionally. And some of us obviously can do it unintentionally. But we need to watch always and ask the Lord to not let us create who we think he is. Like you can hear this often. Yeah, I know Jesus and they'll describe who Jesus is. And I'll just think to myself, um, the Jesus you've described is a Jesus that you love because he does everything for you. But that's not actually Jesus in the Bible. You've created your own Jesus, not the real Jesus, uh, because the things that he's, he says are like way different than you uh, are saying. So uh, Dale Davis says it this way, worship either rests not just worship, but theology, everything. Worship either rests on the prescriptions of divine revelation or on the preferences of the human heart. Make sure we hear that so we understand. The way that we're supposed to worship God rests or is found either in divine revelation from his word or preferences of the human heart. Whatever we think is right. See the one or the other. Um, and our Western current culture, as he writes, is deeply in love with religious subjectivism. It's deeply in love with creating in its own human preferences. But we shouldn't. We should not feel as free as Jeroboam to change God, his truth, his worship, his word, his name, his theology. Instead, since he was so kind to give it to us, we should live by it. No matter what the cultural milieu of the day is, or no matter how much power or security we want to secure for ourselves so that we're happy. Instead, um, ultimate joy and happiness comes by living according to his word. Jer- Jeroboam didn't do this. Um, so that's, that's chapter 12, which really does lead us into chapter 13. We're going to see a different story kind of unfold. Jeroboam's involved in the beginning. Um, but without chapter 12, it's hard to understand chapter 13. But basically what we, what we know is right here is that Jeroboam has set up a new cult, uh, a new little thing, and there's people taking place. And so God does not like this. God is not for this. And so God, out of mercy, is going to send someone to Jeroboam and say, hey, what you're doing is not right. So we're going to get to chapter 13. And I'm just going to tell you up front, you are going to have so many questions. Like, I do not understand <laughs> why, what is going on? And how do what, what, what really? Uh, and I, all I can say is I'm there with you. And the writer uh, agrees or uh, the writer, I'll say it this way. The writer does not feel the need to answer all of our questions. Uh, there are a lot. 
Uh, he does not feel the need to answer our questions, but he does have a theme that he wants us to follow. And so I want to make sure we have the theme down so we know the theme. So when we go through the, the weirdness of the story, we're not thrown off and like down rabbit trolls of what in the world, really? Um, but we stay on the theme. So Roman number two is disobedience to the word. What we're going to see as we go through it is disobedience to the word. Um, and it's kind of a tale of two prophets. You can see the two prophets and they're unnamed which makes it even more confusing. Uh, if you look in verse one and behold, a man of God, that's, that's uh, character one, the man of God, character one. Character two is verse 11, now an old prophet. So you've got man of God and old prophet, two different dudes. Uh, and those are kind of the two main characters of 13. We also have Jeroboam who's kind of beginning it uh, off with us. And we, we already know about him, uh, but he is in the story somewhat. But the main two characters we have are man of God, old prophet. And just so we make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees, the theme of uh, chapter 13 is this. And the way that you know themes especially in Old, Test- Old Testament narrative is repetition. Like if there's something that repeats itself quite often, then you say, this must be the theme. And so uh, if you look with me, I'll show you the theme. It's over and over. Look at verse one. And behold, a man of God, here it is, came out of Judah by, here it is, the word of the Lord. You see that little phrase, the word of the Lord? It's in verse one. It's in verse two. It's in verse five. It's in verse nine. It's in verse 17. It's in verse 18. It's in verse 20. It's in verse 26. It's in verse 32. Over and over and over and over and over. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. I can't say it fast enough, but you see what I'm saying? Like over and over. And so the theme is, as we're going through this kind of crazy story, is the word of the Lord. And he wants us to understand that all these things are happening according to the word of the Lord. And when people disobey it, that's bad. And so the big idea for us is God intends for us to love his word and obey his word. Not just know it, but love it and obey it. All right, so here we are. Verse one, there's this old man of God who God calls. He's like, hey, Jeroboam's got this bad deal going. You need to go tell him to stop the cult. Okay, man of God, go tell Jer to stop the cult. So he's gonna go tell him. Uh, and as we see in verses one through 10, uh, everything that happens, and Jeroboam's heart's hard. He's not gonna listen. But I mean, just the fact that the Lord would even after he told him in 1138, send the man of God to say, hey, stop all this. And it's, here's, a bad, here's a bad prophecy if you don't. It's sheer mercy of God to do this. Uh, so here we go. Verse 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. So that's remember, that's where the, the, the city where they were doing the worship was. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. He's practicing his new cult. And the man cried out against the altar by, here it is, the word of the Lord. So the the man of God comes to him and says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall make sacrifices on you, the priests of the high place who make offerings on you and the human bones shall be burned on you. Now, if a man ever comes to you and tells you that from the Lord and you're, you're Jeroboam, you're thinking that's, that's a bad prophecy for me. Uh, that's so bad. I should probably change what I'm doing. I need to change. Now he's not going to change. Now here's, what's going to happen. He gives him kind of this big picture prophecy of Jeroboam. Your life is terrible. And all these bad things are going to come to true to, to your house. If you don't change. And so in his mercy, the Lord's going to say in verse three, and here's a sign 
of things that are going to let you know they're going to happen. And the sign will come true too. Now, normally we think, oh, the sign's going to take a long time too. You got this overarching prophecy. You have this little sign. But what does God do? He gives him the sign right there in verse 5. And what Jeroboam is supposed to do is, here's the sign. um, And it comes true. I'm going to mess you up in verse 4. I'm going to heal you in verse 6. And all that should help you understand this big prophecy in verse 2 you need to listen to. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. So here it is. Verse 3 prophecy. And he gave a sign that day saying, this is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. That's the sign. It's going to come true. And when it comes true, you can know that the word of the Lord has given you like the facts, Jack, like listen to verse two. And then of course, Jeroboam hears this and he's like, I don't like this at all. So he points his big finger at him and verse four. And the King heard this and it's to the man of God. He cried out against the altar at Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand to the altar saying, seize him. The King screams, seize him. Cause he doesn't like what the man has said. And it says, and which he armed in his, uh, and his hand, which he stretched out dried up. Think paralyzed. It's not like it's like shriveled into this weird, you know, supernatural thing. It just paralyzed. And so he couldn't do this right here. He, his arm was just stuck there. And he's like, I can't pull my arm back uh, when he seizes him. And he's got his arm kind of just stuck out here like this, you know, like it's not going to be easy to sleep, etc. Um, and so he's, his arm's stuck out here. And so that should be the first thing. Like, I need to listen to the man of God because my arm's just stuck out here. Now, verse three told us the sign and watch this verse five, the sign happens and the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord, right there in verse three. And then he's still kind of sitting here pointing. He's like, Hey, uh, man of God, can we take care of the arm, please? So mercy, here it is. The King said to the man of God and treat the favor of the Lord for your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And the man of God had treated the Lord and the King's hand was restored to him. And it came back as it was before. My arm's getting tired. I'm glad it came. So there it is, right? All this is happening. And what should have happened to the King is like, okay, I've started a cult and it's bad. God was kind enough to send me a prophet to tell me to go back to first Kings eleven thirty eight. I should change my ways. I got to get right. None of that happens. Watch verse seven. And the king said to the man, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. Um, and the man of God said to the king um, uh, here, basically the man of God had been sitting by God with a total uh, abstinence, like uh, a food, like you are not allowed to eat any food. Man of God, when you go there, he's going to offer you food. Whoever offers you food, no matter who it is, at any place, at any time, anybody that offers you food, don't take it. And don't even go back to your house the exact same way. Um, Don't eat any food. And so he says, hey, come back to my house. Uh, He says to him, the king says, Jeroboam says, hey, man, a guy, come back to my house. And this is what he says. Even if you gave me half of your house, king, I wouldn't go back with you and eat your bread and drink your water. Forward, here it is. Here's the theme. The command by the word of the Lord that you shall not eat bread or drink water, nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and returned and he didn't return that way to Bethel. Now we see here that go ahead and put up a that we see that what Jeroboam does is despises the word of the Lord. And verse 1 and 10 were left. Like, is he going to despise? Well, 33 and 34 tell us that he is. If you look at verse 33 and 34, after we're going to see the, in the middle part. But nevertheless, here's, here's what happens. Jeroboam, what does he do? Verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not, ret- uh, did not turn from his evil, but made priests for the high places again from among the people. Any who would be ordained would be high pri- priests of the high place. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut off and destroy it from the face of the earth. 
So he despised the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him via prophet and told him to do these things and he despised it. And so the main takeaway that when we look at verses 1 through 10 that we should take is that mercy is written all over those 10 verses of God. Jeroboam, turn. Prophet's coming to you. Here's a sign. Here's your arm. Like now your arm's healed. Here's a sign that just happened. All these things are overflows of mercy pleading with Jeroboam to return to the original thing that he told him in 1138. And what does he do? He rebuffs it all. He rebuffs it all and says, no, I like my newfound cult and my newfound power. No, thanks God. And it, he tells us the writer makes sure we understand his decision in 33 and 34. All of this was sin. All of this was wicked. And Jeroboam was a wicked king. And so uh, what we should realize is he despised the word of the Lord. And in a similar way, we can do the same thing. We can despise the word of the Lord when it comes to us and gives us correction. But the mercy of the Lord that he does this is that he actually comes to us and does give us correction. Just like the old prophet comes and barges into his little cult service and says, Hey, Jer, stop. All this is bad. The Lord will barge into our lives, pointing out our idolatries with his truth and say, Lay down the idols and follow me. He does the exact same thing to us. And when he does it, it's not a mean God who's demanding worship uh, against us because he's just some egomaniac. Instead, it's mercy. It's mercy of God coming to us as Romans 2, 4 says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When the Lord barges into your life and points out your idolatry according to his word, it's kindness that the Lord does that. Because if you repent, then you are brought back into his um, care You are brought back into following him wholeheartedly. And this is good for you. Repentance is always good for you. So when the Lord comes barging into your life, pointing out your idols, don't despise the word of the Lord like Jeroboam. Receive it with a glad heart because Romans 2, 4 says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Don't despise the word of the Lord like Jeroboam. Second thing is don't abandon the word of the Lord. Don't abandon the word of the Lord. In verses 11 through 24, I'm just going to tell you, it's weird. I don't get it all. The writer doesn't want us to understand the details. Um, when we get to heaven, you can be like, God, explain 1 Kings 13. First off, what's the old man and the old prophet's name? Can we start with that? I mean, if it had been Bob and Frank, I would have been like able to follow it better. But here, nevertheless, here we go. So what happened is, uh, what happened was, so like whenever they're in the little cult worship thing, some sons happen to just watch this whole thing take place. And they're like, wow, this old, this, this old man of God came and told Jeroboam off. And they went home and they're like, dad, dad, you should have seen what happened over in Bethel, man. The, Jer got, got told off. Well, the dad is the old prophet. And the old prophet's like, well, I'd like to meet this man of God. I'd like to meet him for sure. And so that's where we pick up. And verse 11 is the old prophet who's living in Bethel. It says that his sons came and told him everything that the man of God had done in Bethel. Like you should have seen it. He told him off. And so they said to their father, all the words that had been spoken to King Jeroboam and their father said, well, which way did he go? I want to follow him. And his son showed him the way that he went and the man of God uh, had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle up the donkeys. And so they saddled up the donkeys and they went after this man of God. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak in 14. Found him sitting under an oak. Now, he's, he's on a uh, no food deal, right? So likely he's exhausted. He's just exhausted trying to get up enough strength to keep going, sitting there under the oak. We don't know. Just speculation, right? 
I'll admit. But nevertheless, I think that what's going to happen after this is because of uh, hunger. It's because of hunger. Now, um, remember, uh, there's a ton of unanswered questions, but mostly just what is going on and why is all this happening. But one thing we know for sure is this. Um, the abstinent orders of no food had been given to this, um, to this man of God by God, and he knew it. He tells us in verses 8 and 9, And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to eat your bread. I'm not going to drink your water. Because the, the Lord commanded me by his word, Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. And he's going to say it again in 16 and 17, uh, where he says, I may not return to you or go with you. I won't eat your, eat your bread. I won't hear. For it said by the word of the Lord, there it is, you shall, shall not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. So it's, he states the exact same thing, same thing twice. So he knows he's not supposed to do it. But he's going to, but he's going to. Now he was lied to, he was lied, which is bad, but nevertheless, he's going to abandon the word that was given to him and trust, uh, this, this old prophet who lies to him. Here it is. Verse 11. Uh, we've already read some of that. So let's go to 13. He saddled up the donkey 14. He went after the man of God and he came to him in verse 15, uh, sitting under the oak tree and he said, Hey, uh, are you the man of God that just came from, from Judah? And he said, I am he. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. And so he's not allowed to do this. And so he tells him, I can't turn, return with you. I can't eat your bread. Uh, I can't go because the Lord of the Lord has told me I can't eat bread. And then he said to him, hey, this is where it's bad. I'm a prophet just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. And he said to bring you back to my house that you can eat my bread and drink my water. And here it is. But he lied to him. So the old prophet lies to the man of God and says, now you can come, you can come. Now he's tired and he's hungry and he's sitting under the oak tree and he probably just wants to eat. And as soon as he's told, you can go do this because God says, and he's like, okay, um, Galatians 1, 8. If anybody comes to you speaking in any other gospel, besides the one I've told you, may he be accursed. First uh, John 4, 1, test the spirits. So um, if we're bringing some New Testament kind of theology into it, God had spoken to this man, don't do it. Somebody else came in the midst of his temptation moments and he's like, okay, man, I'm hungry. If it's from God, sure. God had already spoken to him, but a man tells him something that he says, I'm from God. People can do that all the time, right? They can do that all the time. And so because in his midst of his temptation, unlike Jesus, who in the midst of wilderness withstood the temptations and didn't eat in his 40 day fast, this man, this particular old uh, man of God doesn't do it. So King Jesus is better than this man of God in, in all the ways. And unlike the old prophet, King Jesus never lies. There's all kinds of ways that we can point to Christ. We'll get to all that, but let's keep going. So he lied to him. So we went back with him and ate his bread in his house and drank his water. And now here's where it gets crazier, right? So now the old prophet who lied gets an actual prophecy from God. He's like, Oh, so now I have a real prophecy from God. And it's this, uh, since you came back to my house and ate my bread and drank my water, you're going to die now. So, you know, Merry Christmas, um, happy birthday or whatever. They didn't have Christmas back then. So, so it's bad, bad news, right? Really bad news for them. And so you can see, and as they sat at the table again, I, I agree. Chapter 13, what is going on here? What really? Um, so here it is. So they're sitting there, uh, and the, uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back and he, he cried to the man who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord that he gave you directly and not kept the command that the Lord commanded you this don't eat, but have come to back and eaten the bread and drunk the water in the place that he said to you, eat no more, bring no, your body shall come to the tomb of your fathers. Um, and after 
shall not come to the tomb. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for whom the prophet had brought back. And as he went, a lion met him on the road and killed him. (laughs) And his body was thrown into the road and the donkey stood beside him. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing on the body. And as they came and told him in the city uh, where the old prophet lived. So lots of Lots of imagery, even from New Testament, where you have this man riding on the road in a donkey, but kills. But Jesus rides all the way in and is killed for us. You have the lion who does it. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I know that there's all these kind of symbolism in imagery, uh, and it's easy to get bogged down into most of it. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, you have the lion kill the guy who's a carnivore and then just kind of stands there with the donkey, who he also would like to eat and kill, along with this man that he, he should want to eat. And he just stands there and doesn't eat the live donkey or the dead man, but just stands there for days, right? And you're like, what is going on? What? And so I think what's going on here is this. Ultimately, that lion stands there and doesn't devour the man or the donkey. Because in those days, the lion would kill him and they'd say, yeah, that happens all the time. But the lions just don't kill people and then stand beside them and not eat them for days, Right? When everybody sees that, that helps them see, well, that's not the way it usually goes down. This must be God. This whole thing just must be God. All the way it's happening is so that everybody would say, yeah, God did that. Not just regular kind of day by day, the way the world works. Um, And so what we see here is that the man of God uh, abandons the word and disobeys here uh, in in a pretty terrible way. And we also have the... Because he eats. So, and, but we also have where the prophet himself, um, he should not have lied. He should not have lied. So the prophet presumably was a man of God, was a prophet that had been used by God many times. He had lived his life uh, delivering the word of the Lord to people. And even in his old age, just we, we can presume the writer wants us to think lies to this man of God like it's nothing. And so I think the third thing it shows us is this. See, that we need to be gripped by the word of the Lord. We can be Christians for a long time. Uh, if you've been at Remedy for a long time, we preach through books of the Bible. And I think ultimately that's the best way for you to learn the word. And hopefully, and I'm not trying to juxtapose these two as, as against each other. I think that you should know the word of the Lord absolutely and be uh, Thoroughly knowledgeable of all of the scriptures of what the Lord teaches, Old Testament, New Testament, etc. But as you know the word of the Lord, presumably like this prophet does, you should also be gripped by it so that you love it and want to obey it. Likely that's not happening, this prophet. If he knows the word of the Lord, has been delivering it for all these years and then just lies to this guy like it's no big deal. That shouldn't happen for us. People who have known the word for a long time, you've been a Christian for a long time, don't just know the word, but be gripped by it. Love it. Want to obey it. The theme, as I've said, of this chapter is the word of the Lord. And as I said in the beginning is he intends for us not just to know it, but to love it and obey it. And so here that wasn't happening. Um, The rest of the chapter is uh, the prophet realizing that he's done wrong and he buries the man. So you can see um, in the prophet who had brought him back in 26... uh, from the way heard of it, he heard that the man had died by the lion. He said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion 
which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord spoke. Verse 27, he said to his sons, saddle the donkey, and he saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside it as a type of witnesses, two witnesses, if you will. The lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. Lion's just standing there. Amazing. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. Seemingly remorseful, seemingly. Um, and he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all those houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria are surely come to pass. In other words, that man when he came and gave those judgments in the, in the cult service, that judgment is true. That judgment is true. And I realize it. And so uh, coming judgment is going to happen. And so we need to be fearful of that. And so ultimately for us, that means Jesus promises the same thing. Coming judgment for sin is going to happen. And we as the people of God should be fearful of it. Therefore, want to live and according with the scriptures um, and believing the gospel that Christ is the only sacrifice for that. And now Jesus is our only hope. And now we want to, as a Christian, live according to his word and the way that he's prescribed for us to live as his believers. Those things are true. I realize this. That man was, was right. And coming judgment is happening. And the same for us. Coming judgment is happening for those who are outside of a knowledge of Christ. And Christ is their only hope. Christ is their only hope. And we already had looked at 33 and 34. Um, Jeroboam, back to him, uh, did not have a heart of repentance. So he disobeyed the word completely. Which brings us to chapter 14. We're just going to look at the first 20 verses where we see death. Death Brought by the word of the Lord. These are prophecies. So we're back to uh, Jeroboam and his household. He's got a wife uh, and his wife. We're just going to call her Mrs. Jeroboam. She's not named. Mrs. Jeroboam and Mr. Jeroboam have a, a son. And as wicked as he is, still loves his son. His son's sick. And he's like, oh no, son's sick. I don't want him to die. And so back in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight, 38, uh, Ahijah is the prophet that comes to Jeroboam and is like, if you live according to the David, walk according to his statutes, live according to his commandments, then he'll give you this. And all. The, 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 the positive prophecy given to him is Ahijah. And so um, he thinks to Mrs. Jeroboam, he says, all right, Mrs. Jeroboam, what I want you to do is disguise yourself. Go to Ahijah, the prophet. Um, so he doesn't know it's you. He just thinks it's, it's, it's random lady saying, I have a sick son. And I need to know if he's going to live. And so since he doesn't know it's me, because I haven't done what he told me in 1138, I need for you to disguise yourself. Because if you come as Mrs. Jeroboam, then he's going to be like, no, 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 no good for you. You haven't lived according to you're supposed to. So disguise yourself. So when you go, he'll just think, the prophet will just think, well, this is just, you know, a random lady. And maybe he'll give you a good prophecy about our son. There's a lot of problems with this. Like a lot of problems. Number one, and maybe... (laughs) The funniest, uh, Ahijah's blind. So you could dress up as a cow and it's not going to matter because he, he can't see you. And so it's pointless. Um, number two, God's going to tell Ahijah 
before she even comes, hey, uh, Jer's wife's coming. And so just to let you know, give you a heads up, he's coming. And so uh, it doesn't matter if you try to disguise yourself because he's blind and he knows you're coming. Um, And of course, three is uh, you've lived a terrible life, Jer. It's not going to go well. And so if you look at verse three, here it is. At that time, Abijah, that's his son's name, not to be confused with Ahijah, the son of Jeroboam fell sick. Jeroboam said to his wife, arise, disguise yourself that it may not be known who you are. Um, the wife, my wife, go to Shiloh and Ahijah, that prophet who told me what I'm supposed to do and I didn't do it, um, is there. Um, he said, I should be king over this people. I want you to take some, some Krispy Kreme with you. Take 10 loaves and some cakes and jars of honey and go to him. It's got to be Krispy Kreme. Uh, win him over. Uh, and so he said, and he's going to tell you what's going to happen to the child. And so she goes over there. And so Jerobo, Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose. She went to Shiloh. She came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah couldn't see for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to, coming to you inquire, to inquire of her son because he's sick, and this is what you're going to say. Um, just as a note, like, God already knows what's going to happen. It's not like you can sneak out and, and fool the prophet and be like, well, I can go in there as somebody doesn't know, and he'll give me this positive thing. Because God's not, like, inside of time just watching it unfold, and he's like, I never knew that that was Jeroboam's wife, or I would have given you a different prophecy. It would have been way bad. I mean, God's literally outside of time and can see everything from eternity past to eternity future as it all happens. And, and I would say ordaining and orchestrating. And so the prophecy that's going to come to, it, it can't be changed. It can't be changed. So here we are. And so um, verse 5b, and she came, she pretended to be another woman. And I heard Hajah uh, heard the sound of the feet and came to the door. And it's like, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why, why are you pretending to be another person? For I'm charged with unbearable news for you. I have a word for you. And this word for you, as it's coming to you, is going to uncover and expose and reveal your deceit. You already know who you are and how... What, it was happening in your life and it's going to do these things. So a, is it already good? Uh, the word of the Lord is going to come and it's going to uncover, expose and reveal your deceit. Now, interestingly enough, an illustration of this same thing happening to us has happened in history. Uh, this is remarkable, but nevertheless, the word of the Lord does that for us as well. Uh, it comes to us, um, not via prophet Ahijah, but through his word and likely uh, through your friends and community group, etc., And they speak to you the word of God, not their own thoughts, um, but the word of God. And when it does, it will uncover, expose and reveal our own deceitful hearts. And when it does, what are you going to do? Rebel against it or have a soft heart towards it? Well, here's a story of someone doing amazingly similar things that what we're seeing in the text. This is a story of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, um, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle on a Sunday evening in July 31, 1864, there was a man in Newington who had been converted under Charles Haddon Spurgeon's preaching and became a regular worshiper at the tabernacle against and over his wife's strong objections for she was a stonk staunch adherent of the established church. She didn't like Spurgeon. She didn't like his baptistic ways, presumably, and didn't want this man to be a convert and didn't want him going to the services. And so uh, one Lord's evening, he had gone to service and he had left and her, 
Uh, she had stayed, but she had an insatiable curiosity come over her and she was determined to go hear this man, Charles Spurgeon, speak and figure out why he was so popular. If you don't know anything about Charles Spurgeon, um, thousands were coming to hear him preach and he didn't have a PA system. So he had a big voice and people were getting converted all over the place in the later 18, mid 18, late 1800s in London. And it was like, he's a phenomenon, a phenomenon. And like people are getting saved all over the place. Right. And they're just, what's going on? Um, well, so she didn't want to be recognized. So she disguised herself. Sounds like this, um, disguised herself by putting on a veil, thick veil and a heavy shawl. And to minimize visibility, she went up to the upper gallery and she was of course late reaching the building. And so she entered in, she heard Charles Spurgeon reading verse six, which reads when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, she came to the door. Come in wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another for I'm charged with unbearable news for you? The, the exactly kind of what she's doing is actually being read to her. And of course, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why faintest thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings, King James. Um, so she figured and averred that Charles Spurgeon was pointing directly at her when he announced these words. His sermon was obviously suited to her specifically as she was walking in. Providence, for sure, indicated as he did that here's the case. Um, and all, and all, the whole point is this. God's gospel will search you out, unmask your true character, even though you may disguise yourself as you may. The word of the Lord is going to come to us and it will uncover, expose, and reveal our deceit as it did for this lady, as it did for this lady, and as it does for us. When it does, it's a grace. When it does, it's a grace. It's a good thing. And you shouldn't run from it. Not only does it reveal our deceit, it reveals our disobedience. We're going to see that in 7 through 11. The word of God is going to uncover, expose, and reveal disobedience. Um, Remember, 1 Kings eleven thirty eight. I've mentioned it many times. This, that's the way that Jeroboam was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to um, walk according to his father David, you know, not his father's grandfather David, and live according to God's statutes and commandments. But this is what he says to him. He disobeys. He doesn't do it. And God, go tell, Jer- so the, the prophet says to the wife, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because... Uh, I exalted you from among the peoples and made you the leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And you've not been like my servant, David, who kept David, who kept my statutes and followed me with all his heart, doing what was right in my own eyes. But you've done evil above all you were uh, above all who were before you. And you have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger. You've just been an idolater. You even created your own cult, Jer. Like, seriously, um, provoking me to anger. You've cast me behind your back. Therefore, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male. Now, I'm going to stop here and give us the uh, non-sanitized rendering of this. Um, So he doesn't say, and here's what he's doing. He doesn't say male. He actually says those who urinate against the wall. Never thought I'd say that in a sermon, but that's what I'm saying. Uh, and the reason why he's saying those who urinate against the wall, never thought I'd say this either, except for service. He's wanting, he's wanting to juxtapose urination with dung. Dung's coming later, and he's wanting to make it just as plainly obvious to him that what you've done is wretched and terrible. And so... Uh, I agree. It's pretty amazing and it's been sanitized for. So let's make sure we get the full brunt of what's happening because he's, he's wanting to him to know you have abominated the word of God with your sin. 
so bad. This is what the consequences are of your wicked, wicked sin. Consequences are on those who are urinated against the wall of your wicked, wicked sin, which is dung. All right, here it is. Verse 10. Therefore, this is what's going to happen to you. I will bring harm to the house of Jeroboam and cut off from Jeroboam everyone that urinates against the wall. That's just males, obviously. Um, And both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns dung until it is all gone. Now, I've never done that. That's not what we do. We just flush the toilet and let it go. But I guess they burned it up till it was all gone back then, which, you know, glad that's not my job. Um, But nevertheless, uh, all that to say, not everything I ever thought I'd say, here's what we're trying to get out of that, right? What is that for? Here's what we need to get out of verse 10. How much does God hate disobedience? So much so that he says, your sin is dung and he wants it burned up completely. As in, he wants our sin completely burned up. Do not commit it. So much so that he's willing to put forward his own son and take all of our sin and put it on his own son so that we can be forgiven. He wants all of it gone until it's all gone. Until Jesus says, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then ultimately he says, it is finished. This verse is pointing us to Christ to help us see that God hates disobedience and sin. So much so he calls it dung and it needs to be vanquished completely forever, which is what he does on the cross. So therefore, this is what's going to happen to your house. But ultimately, he takes care of it for those who follow him. And not only that, even worse, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city Dogs are going to eat them. And anyone who dies out in the country, birds are going to eat them. For the Lord has spoken it. That's a harsh word, no doubt. And when the Lord comes to us and reveals and exposes our disobedience, it's, it's, it's difficult to deal with. But what are we going to do? We're going to realize Christ is our only hope. Christ is our only hope. And it also should, um, believer in Christ... It should help you see just how much God hates sin in your own life and how like God, we should hate it too with everything inside of us and want it gone. We should never be comfortable with sin. Now, last thing, the word of the Lord will also, I put them all as D's, um, destiny. And that just means death. It's going to sin leads to death. Verse 12, arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, this is terrible to tell their mother, right? When you walk into your city, your child's going to die. And all Israel will mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him, there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel and the house of Jeroboam. He gets to die quick. Everybody else is It's going to be painful. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond their Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger. And here it is, 16. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. So these are harsh things, but nevertheless, they did them. The judgment that comes to them is just. They did these things. All these things. God could have shown mercy, but here he's going to show them his justice. Verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose, depart to Terza, and as she entered to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for the according to the word which he spoke by the prophet Ahijah. And then in 19 and 20, you get Jeroboam's quick eulogy. 
the rest of the acts of Jeroboam he warned how he reigned are written in the book of Chronicles and at that time Jeroboam reigned was 22 years he slept with his father he died um, and Nadab his son took his place the word of the Lord comes when it comes it uncovers exposes and reveals your destiny which if you stay in your sin is death is death sin has brought us death as it says in Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death like Jeroboam and his son sin brought death and it does this to us as well and finally we get to some good news for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord so Let's conclude this way. Tony Marita writes this as a conclusion, and I think it's just amazing. He says, where should this end, this, this story of 12, 13, 14, where should it end? Jesus. We wrap up this dark period of Israel history, division, downfall, all these things, by looking at Jesus. The story reminds us that we need a better king. We need a better prophet. We need a better man of God. We need one who overcomes our great problem, death. We need one who can bring about a united kingdom under a perfectly just and wise reign. We have all of this, yes, all of this in Jesus, the king to end all kings. The good news of the gospel is that God is merciful to sinners. We're no different than Jeroboam. If you're a believer in God, it's because he's been kind to you and led you to repentance. And so the good news of the gospel is God is merciful to us sinners. He forgives idolaters and liars just like us. He offers everlasting life to a dying people. This salvation is made possible through the work of the king who took our judgment at the cross, rose from the dead, and opened the way of salvation for all who will heed God's call to repent and to believe in Christ. So don't persist in sin. Repent from your sin. Look to Jesus as your sin-bearing substitute who alleviates our greatest burden, sin, and embrace the fullness of salvation that Jesus offers. Then you can be assured a place in his coming kingdom. And then you have embraced him as your savior and your king. This is our Christ who is the better king, the better prophet, the better man of God who shows us that sin is absolutely serious to him and therefore takes all the punishment for our sin for us by living the perfect life for us, goes to the cross for us, and then all of his righteousness is given to us if you repent and put your faith and trust in him. What an amazing king we have. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this word. And I know that this is a quite an interesting story about Jeroboam and what a life of tragedy but ultimately points us to Christ. And so we thank you for that. I pray for all of us that we would live according to your word, that we would deeply desire to follow your word the way that you have given us orthodoxy and who you are and your name and your theology and all these things, that we would live according to them and not shape them to our own cultural milieu, but instead live according to your word, no matter what the day is, no matter how fearful we are. And those who are unbelievers, I pray that they would trust in you. And make Jesus their king. And for us that who are believers, we would continually remind ourselves that our righteousness is not found in anything else besides Christ. And now because we have a right standing with you, we march forward wanting to worship you rightly, know you rightly, repent of you, repent of our sin correctly. Be with us now as we continue in worship and thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.